All right, uh, we're going to dive into this passage, which um, I have been percolating on for a little while. I intended to preach this last Sunday, and the Lord had other plans, but uh, here we are. So let me just begin with a, a brief prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you that we get to feast on it each and every Sunday. Would you grant us all we need now to have our eyes, and more importantly, our eyes of faith opened to see the wonders in your word, to see our Savior Jesus in all his glory. Would you change us? Would you encourage us? Would you make us more like him in this moment? We pray in his name. Amen. Have you ever lost something extremely important? There's one man named James Howell who lost a fortune, even though it was right in front of his face. It was right at his fingertips. Uh, James was one of those early people that got involved in what was a really niche hobby uh, that blockchain technology called Bitcoin. Early on, he used his computer to harvest these digital coins that weren't worth anything, frankly. And like so many, he got tired of the hobby when it didn't really seem like it was going anywhere. And uh, in his boredom, he lost track of something very important. Uh, you see, the way Bitcoin works is your digital coins are only accessible through a unique digital key, a key that is irreplaceable and impossible to replicate. Well, James happened to lose track of that key. It was on an old external hard drive on his desk. And one spring when he was doing his spring cleaning, that hard drive went in the dumpster and went to the dump. Well, years went by. One day, James decided to check in on the value of his 7,500 bitcoins. And to his surprise, they had gone up just a little bit. They were now worth $270 million. He literally has a fortune right at his fingertips, but he's lost the key to be able to access it. Now, as I was thinking about that story and feeling for that guy in the moment, I couldn't help but see a parallel to the Christian life. In my experience, there are many Christians that have a, a whole fortune right at their fingertips. They have the wondrous riches of God's words printed in Bibles abundantly in their houses. And yet so many of them lack the key to be able to access it. We find ourselves struggling to do our devotions in the morning, unconfident in our ability to teach others the truths of the Bible, even powerless in our witness because We've lost track of the key to see that the scripture is all about the Savior. Our passage in Luke 24 is a, really a journey of two people, a perplexed pair as they stumble through this journey of faith until their eyes are opened as the scriptures are opened and the Savior gives them the key to see that it's all about him. So I hope you'll come with me this morning as we walk down the Emmaus Road and we discover for ourselves that all scripture is about the Savior. Uh, the story begins and there's two main scenes in verses 13 through 24. We were introduced to a perplexed pair 
that have the privilege of walking and talking with Jesus. Uh, the context of our story is the Easter Sunday. It's now Easter Sunday evening. The disciples had peered into that mystery with the door wide open, the empty tomb. They didn't really understand what they saw. They knew something had happened, but their minds were still turning it over, trying to figure out how it could be that Jesus is not in the tomb where his body had been laid. As these puzzle pieces continued to be turned over, a pair is walking back to their place of lodging, a place called Emmaus. It's about a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem, which means for adults, it probably would have been a several-hour walk. And as they walk, so often is the case, they walk and they talk. As they're walking and talking, turning over the confusing and disconcerting events of the day, they're joined by someone unexpected, a mystery man, incognito Jesus. We see in verse 15, while they were walking and talking, discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and with, with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. One of my favorite narrative devices is called narrative irony. It's when you, the audience, and the narrator, the one who's telling the story, are in on something, and yet people in that story, well, they're, they're blissfully unaware. Uh, one kid's movie that we enjoyed not too long ago that uses this is called Ratatouille. Uh, it's a story of Remy, the chef mouse, who uses a human puppet, Linguini, to show his, uh, his brilliance in the art of cuisine. Now, at several points leading uh, along the, in the movie, uh, Remy is creating incredible dishes, and the whole time the people around him are unaware because all they see is awkward linguini doing all the cooking right there in front of him. Now, now that's an example of narrative irony. You know it's a mouse, but the people in the story don't yet know. Well, this passage in Luke 24 is dripping with narrative irony. It starts off with them unaware of who the guy is who walks next to them. And as the conversation unfolds, it becomes laughably ironic how much they are missing the majesty of the one who walks with them. Now, right here from the beginning, we see that it's intentional they don't understand who he is. They, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That means that Jesus himself is making sure they don't know who he is. Why is he doing that? I think Jesus is showing, again, his gentle character to come alongside people who, who aren't yet ready to understand who he is, gently drawing them out. He, so he approaches them like one would approach a skittish deer, slowly, calmly, gently, he draws them out. You can see him continue to do this by asking them questions. He doesn't just blurt out, by the way, it's me, Jesus. He asks them a question. In verse 17, he said to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? Little by little, pulling it out of them. Well, as he does so, it becomes obvious that the, this pair is filled with confusion and discouragement. They don't understand what's happened, but their hearts are filled with sadness because their friend and master and teacher, Jesus, is dead. 
The one named Cleopas, he, he, after a moment of deafening silence, he finally answers. He says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? In other words, have you been living under a rock? Now, now catch the irony here. He's asking Jesus if he does not know what has happened about the cross and the empty tomb. What delicious irony. Jesus continues drawing them out. And he said to them, what things? And then the floodgates open. Cleopas gushes with everything that's burdening his heart. He tells him, this guy named Jesus, he was a, a man, a prophet, mighty in word and deed. Everyone loved him. Well, well, everyone except those religious leaders, they, they couldn't stand him. They couldn't stand him so much that they made sure that he would be killed in the worst way possible. They, they crucified him. They had the Romans tack him up on that instrument of torture. As bad as that was, it's even worse because we thought he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. We thought he was the Messiah. But then the strangest thing happened. We don't really know what to do with it. Some of the women went to the tomb where they laid him, and wouldn't you know it? This morning, it was empty. And then even a few of the disciples themselves, they ran to the tomb, and they found the same thing. We, some strangest day. What do we think about that? Jesus is gently drawing this perplexed pair out, preparing their hearts to receive the thing that they need most, a vision of the resurrected Jesus and all the joy that comes from a heart that sees him in all the scriptures. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but Jesus is still in the habit of gently drawing seekers to himself. Uh, I've been so encouraged getting to meet so many people that are investigating Jesus over Easter. Uh, so many of you invited people, uh, maybe you're even here this morning after having been invited by a member of our church. Uh, I just want you to know, we're so glad that you're here. And, and I hope that you're okay having unanswered questions as you get to know what the Bible says and what Jesus is like according to the Bible. It's okay to be confused. It's even okay to be a little frustrated Realize Jesus is able to meet you where you are. But friend, he doesn't want you to stay where you are. He wants to lead you to a better place, a place full of joy and peace, if you'll come with him on the journey to seeing who he really is. It was so encouraging hearing that testimony at our prayer meeting a few weeks back of someone who came to faith. And how did that happen? Well, one of the first moments for a man named Brady well, someone in our church gave him a Bible and something led him or someone led him to open that Bible up and to start reading. Jesus is still in the business of meeting confused, discouraged people and showing them himself through his word. Well, the, the story takes a, a bit of a pivot at this point. And this pair turns from a perplexed pair into a joyful one as their eyes are opened to see Jesus. This is the second scene, 25 through 35. A joyful pair have their eyes opened to see Jesus. 
Up to this point, Jesus has kept the cards pretty close to his vest. But at this point, he reveals a little bit about who it is they're speaking to, and more importantly, the, the key that will open their hearts to receive the joy of Jesus. Tells them in verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus starts off with a, a bit of a rebuke. He calls them foolish. He tells them they're slow of heart to believe. And then he uses a familiar formula uh, that all that the prophets have spoken, that the, the Messiah must suffer, that he must die, and that he must rise again. In Luke's gospel, this has been a well-worn path that Jesus has used. Luke has recorded nine times that Jesus has outright said this exact thing or alluded to it. That there's an expectation in the scriptures that the Messiah would follow this pattern of suffering and then, only then, to enter into his glory. And Jesus here, frankly, he tells them, you should have been able to see it. But they didn't see it. Their eyes were blinded, even though it was right there in front of them the whole time. I was Someone put some uh, words to a phenomenon that I'd uh, experienced many times before, referred to as bro blinders. Uh, guys, maybe you can resonate with this. Uh, imagine for a second that someone in your household, uh, usually a wife or a daughter, but it could really be anyone else without bro blinders, they send you to the pantry to find something, say it's a jar of peanut butter for instance, you go to the pantry on this mission intent on finding this important item. You, you open it up and you in, begin what can only be described as the most thorough search in the history of mankind. <laughs> Top to bottom, you scan alphabetically, big to small, however you want to slice it up. You look exhaustively through the pantry and you come to the only logical conclusion. After a full 10 seconds or so, you say... Peanut butter's not in the pantry. And then what happens? They walk right over, and the peanut butter is, is literally right at eye level in front of you. Now, you're sure they did some sort of sleight of hand to put it while you weren't looking, but, but they insist it's right there in front of your face. You just you couldn't see it for some reason. I have to think that something like bro blinders of a spiritual nature... You might call them sin blinders. We're on the, over the spiritual eyes of the disciples. It wasn't as if the scriptures had said anything false. It wasn't as if the scriptures were unclear. It was that their hearts and their spiritual eyes could not bear to see what they said. They wanted a political messiah. Someone that would come and kick out the Romans and put the Jews back on top. The, the idea of a, a crucified Christ, of a suffering Savior, that was not something their hearts were ready to receive. And yet, according to Jesus, it's been there the whole time, right 
in front of their eyes. And in a way only Jesus could have done, he then proceeds to open their spiritual eyes so they can see that thing right in front of their face the whole time. The key so they can see the Savior in all of Scripture. In verse 27, we're told, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the thing concerning himself. Moses and the prophets are the equivalent of saying cover to cover, beginning to end, and everything in between. Jesus is in a sense saying A to Z, it is all about me. Uh, Later on, he'll say it from a slightly different angle when he's showing himself to the rest of the disciples. He'll say, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Uh, If you went into the temple, those would be the three major divisions that the scriptures were in, in the, the temple and scrolls. All of it, exhaustively, Jesus says, is about me. That's the key that their hearts need so that they can see the Savior and they can receive his joy. So they can understand his plan from the beginning as the resurrected Messiah who, yes, suffered and died, but now who has been raised to reign. That is the key that will unlock their boldness. And yes, will empower them to their witness to go and turn the world upside down. As they walk and talk, Jesus walks them through how the scriptures testify to him. And just allow your imagination to run with this for a second. Imagine what must it have been like? What must it have been like to walk on that Emmaus road with Jesus, the very word of God incarnate, as he opened up the wonders of the word to this hapless pair? Imagine as their hearts were filled with wonder, as they understood that he was the word from the beginning that created the world and everything in it in six days and rested on the seventh. Imagine their joy as they walked and talked with him as Jesus connected the long, lonely walk of their father Abraham as he walked up that mountain with his only son Isaac intent on sacrificing him only for it to be a picture of the son who willingly walked to the cross in obedience to his father, a sacrifice for sins. Imagine the excitement of their hearts as they saw the spotless Passover lamb that was slain so the wrath of God would be turned away by the blood of the lamb was preparation for the true lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. Imagine how they savored every word of the Savior as he showed them the water flowing out from the rock in the wilderness that quenched the thirst of God's people was was just a tiny taste of the living water that Jesus himself represents. Imagine the wonder and the awe as he walked them through the courts of the temple and showed them the priests and the sacrifices and the very meeting place of God in the sacrificial system and how every bit of it was about him. Imagine how their hearts swelled as he told them of great King David and his regal throne and that he was great David's greater son, the one that would sit on that throne forever. 
Oh, I have to imagine that time must have felt like it had slowed down. Surely they wished that that moment would go on forever. As the very word of God opened the word to them and their hearts burned as a result. But the scene, it doesn't go on forever. It ends. They eventually arrive at their destination. And Jesus, in a bit more play acting, acts as if he was going to keep walking down the road. And they beg him, please, to stay, have some dinner with us. Maybe trying to extend this moment just a little longer. Jesus takes them up on the offer. And then he finally does it. He opens their eyes. Uh, the moment happens as they sit down. A familiar scene for Jesus and his disciples, sitting and enjoying a meal. As Jesus broke the bread, something clicked. Their eyes were opened and they realized who he was. The risen Savior is right there in front of him. And in that moment, he's gone. I love the way Luke puts in their mouth the words to describe this experience. Did our hearts not burn within us as he opened to us the scriptures? This puzzled pair is now a pair filled with joy. They have seen the Savior with their eyes and they have seen him with eyes of faith in the scripture and they can't help but gossip about it to others. They get up and run the whole journey, the seven miles back to Jerusalem to go tell the rest of the disciples of what they saw. We saw Jesus. He's alive. And in that moment, a new missionary team has uncovered the key that'll unlock their hearts and ultimately that'll allow them to turn the world upside down. So brothers and sisters, what are we to do with this remarkable walk down the Emmaus Road as a perplexed pair finds a key to see the Savior? Well, let me suggest four things that we should take away from it. Ways that this should leave our hearts burning and our eyes open as we see the Savior in Scripture ourselves. First, this should change the reason you read your Bible. It should change the reason you read your Bible. Maybe you've had the experience that I have had many times of Bible reading plans that start off well and end very poorly. I remember one time being given a really well laid out, really helpful Bible reading plan that came in a bookmark that you stuck right in your Bible. It, it had different readings you would do each day and a checkbox that you could check off when you had completed that reading. Uh, now, structure is a very helpful thing, and this bookmark, I'm sure, is very helpful for many people. But pretty quickly, I found it to be an unhelpful exercise. I missed a day, and there was a blank checkbox staring back at me every morning when I took that bookmark out. Pretty soon, it wasn't just one empty checkbox, it was multiple ones each of them telling me how terrible of a Bible reader I was, and each of them encouraging me to just plow through my Bible reading, even if I don't really have the time or energy to do it, to do it out of duty instead of out of delight. I know many of us struggle with our daily devotions. Now, to be clear, we should read the Bible. We should read it every day. 
And we should do so with structure. At times, it's a very helpful thing to have a reading plan. Not trying to say, don't do that. But let's recognize that your motivation for reading the Bible needs to be something other than, this is something a Christian's supposed to do. The Bible is much more than just an exercise of our obedience. It's much more than a rule book. It's much more than just a, a place you come to find a lot of spiritual truths. No, the Bible is a place you should come because you want an encounter with Jesus himself. It's telling that Luke, as he reveals the glory of that mystery of the risen Christ, he does so with an emphasis on the word of God. I don't think many of us are going to have the opportunity to walk and talk with the risen Jesus in this world before he returns uh, at the end of all things. That means for us to meet with Jesus, Luke wants us to know the place we can do that. It's in the words that are given to us, in the scriptures themselves. As you read, yes, you learn truth. As you read, yes, you are doing something good and pleasing to God. But most importantly, as you read, you are meeting with Jesus. Do you love him? Do you love your Lord? Do you want to spend time with him? Do you want to deepen your love for him? Brothers and sisters, let's have the right motivation as we read the Bible. To love our Lord Jesus and to see some more of him in his word. A second implication is that having this interpretive key helps us to broaden our Bible. It makes the Bible more accessible to us. Now, back with that Bible reading plan that stalled out for me, it followed a pattern that many people have fallen into as Christians, and that is we struggle particularly with some of the Old Testament books to read them and, and feel as if they are accessible to us in a way that is actually spiritually helpful. Maybe you start off well reading Genesis, but then you get to halfway through Exodus, or, or maybe you really press through, you get into Leviticus or Numbers, and, and you find yourself really struggling to read straight through the Bible. I think one of the reasons is because most of us have not been taught this key to reading our Bibles to help us see that it all connects to the Christ. That all scripture is about the Savior. Charles Spurgeon understood the need for this. Spurgeon's a pretty good preacher. I think his advice is worthwhile. He said this, uh, don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London? So from every text in scripture, there is a road toward the great metropolis, Christ. And my dear brother, your business is when you get to the text to say, now what is the road to Christ? I've never found a text that had not got a road to Christ in it. And if I, if I ever do find one, I, I'll go over hedge and ditch, but I would get at my master. For the sermon cannot do any good unless there's a Savior Christ in it. Well, I'm no Charles Spurgeon, but I share the conviction that every sermon 
needs to be connected to Christ. Whether we're preaching through Kings or Habakkuk or whether we're going through Jonah or in the weeks ahead as we look at selections of Old Testament texts, all of them have something to say to you, a New Testament believer in the Lord Jesus. There's an interpretive framework that theologians call the redemptive historical method of interpretation. It's just a fancy way of saying all of the scripture somehow connects to Jesus. It teaches you something of his character, what he's like, what his attributes are, or it teaches you something of his work, the way he works to save his people and one day to judge all of humanity. One of our convictions as a church is that we will connect to Christ every time we open God's word together. And I hope you have that conviction yourself for your own study, whether that be in your small groups or in your devotional time, that over time, that you would want to be more confident and capable of connecting the text you're reading to Jesus, to seeing and savoring Jesus as he's revealed in the scripture. Now, as I mentioned, uh, this is something that oftentimes we need help to grow proficient at. That's why the the next three weeks, we're going to continue. This is a a one of a four-part sermon series. And you're going to see a different Old Testament text preached with the extra attention placed on being able to connect it to Christ. And then over summer, we're actually going to spend the entire summer going through Psalms. And that will be one of the aims of that series also. Is how the Psalter shows us the Savior. Some other resources for you if you're interested in going deeper in how you can do this would be our Castleton Core classes. Uh, those are on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock. Uh, right now we are doing a series called The Person and Work of Jesus. It's trying to put together everything the Bible says related to, yes, uh, who Jesus is and what he has done. Uh, I commend that to you. It would be a, a great way to grow in your confidence to do this yourself. Now, as soon as I say that, though, I need to put a hedge against a ditch on the other side. And that is, as we find this interpretive key, we need to humble our hearts. Uh, It's telling that Jesus has to open the eyes of his disciples to be able to see this interpretive key. And we need to remember that everything we have, including the truth of God's word, is a gift of grace from him to us. And that means we should probably be pretty slow before we start beating up other Christians with the bat of whatever thing we're excited about that we've seen in the scriptures. I remember one uh, dear brother in a previous church who had a very pronounced hobby horse. Uh, No matter what the discussion was about, somehow or the other, he would turn it to the thing he was most excited about. And it was an odd thing to say the least. I remember preaching a sermon on the Trinity. I got down and thought that I had done a pretty good job. And he came up to me and said, Pastor, great sermon. There's just one aspect that I wonder what you happen to think of what the Bible says about polygamy. Now, to say that was a sharp left turn would be an understatement. But for whatever reason, this brother had done a lot of study on the subject of polygamy, and he always wanted to talk about it. Now, when you see something for this first time in Scripture, you get excited about it. So it's understandable that you want to share with others what you found. But please remember, we need to be gracious and kind 
Yes, even patient with people as our Savior was. Remember his patient example, gently drawing the disciples out? How many times did they have an opportunity to to put it together themselves before he did it for them? Be careful before you get on your high hobby horse and tell another Christian they are unspiritual or immature because they haven't found something that you have in the word. Now with that said, there is something that we should do once we have started reading the Bible this way. When you see the Savior in the scripture, it should not cause you to just sit by yourself in quiet reflection. No, it should motivate you to mission. The, the two disciples that Jesus showed himself to couldn't help but run back and tell the other disciples. And then once the whole crew heard from Jesus, his full plan revealed, and the way the scriptures were all about him, well, they became the most powerful missionary force this world had ever seen. When you see the Savior in all of Scripture, it makes you want others to see the same things yourself. So you graciously, winsomely, and yes, boldly go out and invite them to come and see what you've seen. The Savior. I remember having this moment myself. I I grew up in a church that did not teach about this key to opening up the scriptures. Uh, I really didn't know what to do with most of the Old Testament. Um, And I even got to the point where I was in seminary in my first semester. And frankly, I I didn't know what I was supposed to do with most of my Bible, about two-thirds of it. And then a dear brother named Dr. Warren Gage, he was who God used to give me the key to see that it's all about the Savior. His Old Testament class walked us through the types and shadows and the prophecies and the patterns that were all fulfilled in Jesus. It was like I had my Bible opened up to me for the first time. I was so excited, I did the most natural thing in the world. I went and found someone that I could tell about it. I told my parents, they actually came and audited some classes, and they also became excited about it. But at that point, I had a group of guys that I was discipling in college ministry, and we found ourselves more motivated to go out and evangelize than we ever were. We started on a weekly basis going to some basketball courts and just trying to talk to people about Jesus that they would let us. As I look back on it, I realize that those things were not by accident. They were linked. When you see the Savior, you want others to see him too. Brothers and sisters, you have a fortune at your fingertips. You have a wealth in God's words right there in front of your face. And you've been given the key to open it up. Would you let your heart be filled with joy? And would you let that joy lead you to graciously and winsomely tell people about your risen Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who died for you, the one who was raised to give you life, and the one whose very word is better than life itself? Let's pray.